This podcast is intended solely for educational purposes and presents information of a general nature. It is not intended to guide or determine any specific individual situation and persons should consult qualified professionals before taking specific action. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not those of Milliman. Hello and welcome to Critical Point, a podcast brought to you by Milliman. I'm Chris Harner, Managing Director of Milliman Cyber Solutions Group, and I'll be your host today. For this episode of Critical Point, I'm sitting down with Mike Schmitz. He's a principal and consulting actuary with Milliman's mortgage practice. We'll be discussing mortgage credit risk and market trends in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. This episode is the first in a two-part series on credit risk, where the next episode will look at the potential for cyber attacks to increase in the financial sector as a result of coronavirus. Mike, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Chris. Mike, your practice focuses on credit risks uh, arising from lending activity, asset portfolios, uh, that type of thing. And I know you do a lot of analytics, probably roughly around March, you know, when COVID-19 hit the U.S. What type of phone calls were you getting? What were your clients saying? What were the kind of analysis or the the fears, the concerns they had um, since, of course, you know, mortgages and, and credit is so fundamental to the U.S. economy? Yeah, we absolutely got a tremendous interest in our services uh, from existing and new clients. Um, those clients, you know, across the globe are participating in credit in some manner. They could be uh, government guarantors. We work with the FHA and other government uh, loan guarantors, private guarantors, including mortgage guarantee insurers and um, the global reinsurance market and capital markets participants that are taking credit risk transfer. Um, and it includes banks, lenders, investors in the capital markets, asset managers uh, that have um, loans or structured credit risks in their portfolios. And all of them were asking essentially the same question, which is what are the ramifications of, of this pandemic and the resulting economic scenarios that it may lead to on um, the credit positions that they have? Yeah, so it feels like... Um this type of event was not anticipated by this space. Is that, is that correct? Um, well, you know, I think that pandemics uh, in general um, have um, received some attention. And so, um, you know, were the credit markets particularly focused on a pandemic? Um, you know, if I look back to some of the stress testing that some of my bank clients go through, they've included, you know, uh, pandemic-related stresses. But the big challenge, I think, is um, that a, a pandemic such as COVID-19 um, is difficult to understand in terms of its full ramifications and, and the economic consequences of it um, in today's sort of global travel and interconnected world. And so uh, even though pandemics in general receive some attention, um, I think that you know, the COVID-19 scenario is still a, a new scenario that everybody is trying to understand. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, it feels like, you know, there's so many implications that still have to be thought through. You know, when COVID-19 hit the U.S. a few months ago, frankly, you know, personally, I had some bad memories of 2007 and eight. I was in Wall Street at the time. My employer took one of the largest bailouts in U.S. history, and I was in risk management. And, and, and looking back, you know, frankly, everybody was caught off guard, you know, people running around saying, well, no one could have seen this coming, you know, everybody had this kind of uh, exposure to, to the market. 
And uh, personally, I love the book and the movie, The Big Short. Uh, it really spoke to me because it helped explain what happened back then. But, you know, I was pleasantly surprised when I joined Milliman to learn that you were actually one of the few voices out there that did see that crisis coming. Do you mind just taking a few minutes to tell us about your article, uh, What Happens When Credit Risks Come Home to Roost? And uh, when I look at the timestamp, that was published November 1st, 2006. Uh, yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, you know, clearly the characters depicted in the big short could see the credit crisis and the global financial crisis evolving in front of them. And indeed, you know, the paper that I co-authored with a colleague in 2006 was also forecasting um, the, the stress in the residential mortgage uh, market. In, in our paper, our thesis was relatively simple. It was that loose underwriting of residential mortgages uh, coupled with home prices that had gotten extremely high relative to fundamental measurements of value such as income and rents um, could spell the perfect storm that you know, we believed were gonna, uh, was going to result in significant stress in the residential mortgage space. Um, in the broader economy. So what we saw were that um, highly leveraged borrowers with low credit scores were getting loans um, in a prevalence of loan products that were very risky themselves through no documentation of income, assets, employment, interest-only features. So these loose underwriting standards were actually fueling that home price graph to go off the charts and out of balance with fundamental measures. And so that feedback mechanism was causing a bubble. And so the global financial crisis spilled out of that. And, um, you know, I, I think that there were signs in advance that were, uh, that were clear enough that we published that public paper on it in 2006 in advance of the crisis. Um, but, you know, certainly the consequences of the global financial crisis were difficult to predict. But we did see that there was a storm brewing and it was squarely focused right on residential mortgage credit. Yeah, so, so, so it's interesting, Mike, um, you know, that's what I love about risk management is, is that the triggers, you know, there seems to be crisis after crisis and the triggers are always different. So we, we have to stay on, on, our toe, on our toes. And, you know, a, another favorite book of mine, um, which actually read just before the, the financial crisis back in, as it started in 2007, was Nassim Taleb's uh, Black Swan. And, you know, when, when this COVID thing hit, I revisited that book and I completely missed it when I had originally read it. But he actually states in the book that there's an increased risk of pandemics due to global travel patterns. And, you know, as it pertains to credit markets, many people feel that COVID-19 fits this definition of like this unanticipated extreme tail event with severe consequences. Um, but when we chatted, you disagree. Why? So much like um, our article and the, and the um, characters in the big short, seeing the global financial crisis evolving um, before it was even happening, Taleb mentions the, the severe risk of pandemic, particularly when we're in this global interconnected world with, with travel um, so prevalent. Um, and then, you know, we've seen SARS and H1N1. And if you go all the way back to the Spanish flu in 1918, you know, pandemics happen. So in terms of, um, you know, was it unexpected and, and, um, and therefore a black swan, I think, you know, you could easily challenge whether it meets that criteria since Taleb was warning about it. The World Health Organization, you know, as recently as a couple of years ago is warning about the risk of pandemic. And Bill Gates has also been warning about those, um, those risks of a pandemic. So I do believe that much like the global financial crisis, um, one could challenge whether the COVID-19 would fit the criteria of a black swan. 
you know, one of the things that, that really people fixate on for obvious reasons is this uh, concern about mass unemployment. Um, I've seen, uh, you know, dire predictions in articles, you know, talking about mortgage default rates, say, hitting 30%. That would be worse than the Great Depression. I think that's in a lot of people's minds. Um, what trends are you seeing in the mortgage market since you're analyzing this every day? Yeah, we're not seeing anything so severe as what you're portraying. Um, and I think that um, there's, a, there's many reasons for that, right? We aren't expecting defaults to look like the Great Depression or even the global financial crisis. And I guess there's three main reasons for that. Uh, the first reason is that the mortgage market looks completely different than it did going into the global financial crisis. Indeed, the global financial crisis was squarely um, caused by um, risks that had built up in the residential mortgage space. Uh, those loose underwriting criteria that sort of defined and gave rise to the global financial crisis, um, the lessons were learned. And underwriting standards are so much tighter these days that the credit quality is just monumentally different than it was going into the global financial crisis. Um, another reason that we're not expecting that is that there's been unprecedented assistance to borrowers in terms of increased unemployment benefits, you know, helicopter cash, forbearance, um, and other loan um, uh, assistance programs. So uh, we really are not expecting to see um, you know, the type of default rates that came out of the global financial crisis. Uh, the third reason is that um, U.S. residential mortgage is much more sensitive to home prices than unemployment rates, and home prices are actually holding up um, strongly and are not expected to decline by a substantial amount as a result of COVID-19. Yeah, that, that last point's interesting to me because, you know, I, I live in an area that's kind of semi-rural, roughly an hour outside of New York, and it seems like there's still a strong bid out here. I think we talked about, um, you know, with, with the pandemic and you have to shelter in place, are we seeing an uptick in certain areas or certain type of buyers of people who want, you know, a home to stay in or if they're in a large urban area to, to get out if there's, if there's this kind of situation? Um, I think what you're seeing is that um, there's a, a lot of focus on your home or your apartment or your condo. That's one of your most important assets when you're in the middle of a pandemic and you're sheltering at home. So there's a lot of attention on trying to keep people in their residences and that um, and you're seeing that bear out in in the statistics uh, the forbearance take-up rates have not been nearly as high as I think a lot of market participants expected forbearance is the ability to not pay your mortgage so you're effectively suspending the um, obligation to pay the mortgage payment and servicers um, by the cares act must uh, allow up to 12 months of forbearance, and even borrowers that are, um, uh, are that are taking a forbearance option, a substantial percentage of those borrowers are actually still paying their mortgage. Um, so whether that's because they they want the forbearance as an option if things get worse, or whether that's because they have the financial means to make their mortgage payment and they would rather not get behind, but they're still qualify for a forbearance. Even um, if you look at the rental market, those that are renting um, are continuing to pay their rent at a comparable uh, level to the 2019 uh, early months. So if you compare March and April of 2020 to March and April of 2019, you see um, comparable rates with which rents are being paid. 
Yeah, so that's interesting because, you know, something that we saw in the last crisis that was kind of unexpected that makes sense. We had never seen en masse people send the keys back back to the bank, kind of kind of walking away. So it's interesting. We're not seeing that. There's actually strong incentive for, is it correct to say, both parties to, to make this work? Well, what I would say is that um, after the global financial crisis and home prices going down, uh, it's absolutely the case that borrowers had negative equity, meaning the, their house was a liability. It wasn't an asset. They had no incentive to pay their mortgage when they could walk away, essentially. And so you had a lot of strategic defaults. Um, in this pandemic, um, your home, your, your living quarters are in a very important asset that you are going to make every effort to hold on to. So whether that means um, taking advantage of these borrower assistance programs or whether it means um, you know, paying your mortgage, even though, you know, Things are uh, tight and you have to choose which payments you make. We are not seeing the spike in, in defaults and delinquencies that many market participants expected, particularly in light of the unemployment shocks that we're seeing. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned unemployment. I wanted to return. You know, I think I almost fell out of my seat when I saw the print on the unemployment numbers dropping from 14.7% to 13.3%. What do you make of that? You know, when what is the implication for for the mortgage market? Yeah, I think the market was generally bracing for that fourteen point seven percent unemployment rate to rise further before coming down. Um, but the, what I might make out of it is that um, the snapback is actually pretty sharp and maybe faster than market participants were expecting. And you know, there's the potential for a a second dip and a potential the potential for a second wave of uh, COVID-19. Um, the, you know, the return of the economy has been faster uh, as it relates to employment than many market participants were, were thinking. Um, with that said, I, I, as I mentioned, when you're focusing on United States residential mortgages, they're much more correlated to home prices than unemployment. And uh, there's a number of reasons for that. I think both the pandemic and the unemployment shock have disproportionately impacted uh, lower wage groups such as service and retail workers who are disproportionately renters and in the rental market. And so it may have less of an impact on the residential mortgage market. But I think that's why the borrower assistance is so important and the unemployment benefits are so important. Uh, assistance in general is, is just really critical because of both the, the health and humanitarian and economic turmoil that's disproportionately hitting lower income individuals, also disproportionately hitting um, black, Hispanic, and Asian um, borrowers. And so it's critically important that um, those assistance programs help keep those individuals on their feet. How significant today is that to the general mortgage book when we think of the largest institutions? Well, I think going into the global financial crisis, um, you saw a very large um, subprime mortgage market that was uh, fueled by private label securities. Um, while there are private label securities these days, they represent a much smaller percentage of the overall mortgage market. And so um, you're correct that um, the non-qualified mortgage world is experiencing um, worse stress than um, FHA borrowers and more stress than Fannie and Freddie borrowers. Um, that market is generally very small compared to the broader mortgage market these days. We're coming out of shelter in place, but it's been pretty rough for retail for 
businesses that require high traffic, how do we think about commercial lending? And, and again, is there any relationship you're seeing with, with, with the resi side? Yeah, I think this, this stress is definitely cutting across uh, various sectors very differently. Um, even within consumer, you're seeing a much bigger impact on subprime auto, for example, than you are seeing for residential mortgage because unemployment has a much bigger effect on um, the subprime auto lending. And again, when you're sheltering in place, your home is a much more valuable asset than, than your, your car is that may get repossessed. Um, but then also within commercial, it cuts very differently across various segments, across various geographic regions that are more um, focused and oriented towards um, travel economies, such as Nevada. You're seeing it affect different types of industry groups because obviously travel and retail have been hit uh, very substantially by the pandemic and the resulting um, shutdowns. So you definitely see things cutting across different sectors to, to different degrees. Now, you know, certainly it's the case that the more severe scenarios get, the more correlated the various geographic regions, the more correlated the various industry groups, and uh, the more correlated the various asset classes become. But as we look at things um, as they stand today and the current forecasts, uh, there, there are very disparate um, scenarios being uh, painted for those various groups. So I know I know we don't have a crystal ball, but there's talk about a second wave. What are some things we should think of? What should we look at? You know, how are you thinking about that? And, and are any of your clients uh, asking that kind of question? Yeah, it's very much on, on the minds of, of us and our clients. Um, I think that what you're seeing right now is that a second wave is really built into the economic forecasts um, that we use in our credit models. So if you look at the unemployment scenarios, um, they definitely show uh, evidence of a second wave to the pandemic. Um, that said, um, the, the unemployment um, scenario that we're seeing is more optimistic than many of those models will be were built off of. Nevertheless, um, the scenarios that we're using in our models do show a second wave. Now, if um, the second wave is much larger than is contemplated in those scenarios, or the, um, the, the, the assistance that comes from the government uh, for borrowers and general assistance isn't commensurate with the size of the second wave, uh, then things uh, could undoubtedly get worse. Um, but we are definitely contemplating a second wave to a degree in, in the forecasts that we're, uh, that we're doing because the economic scenarios reflect a second spike to unemployment. No, oh, that's, that's very interesting. You know, um, after the previous crisis, uh, you know, I left Wall Street in 2009. I got into, I got into consulting and um, you probably remember the, the joint consent order between the uh, Federal Reserve and the FDIC with the 14 largest mortgage servicers. So I got a lot of experience helping do remediation and kind of one of the big themes from that was loan mod, you know, looking at defaults, REO, you know, we talked about forbearance. And again, I can't resist asking, you know, um, what, what should we expect because, you know, at least last time that was, that was a big theme. And again, if we go into a, a second wave, who knows how this plays out, but um, would, would, would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, we're spending quite a bit of time uh, on the phone with clients and uh, working on uh, the impacts of the various borrower assistance programs that are out there. 
we ha we had a practice run on this during the, the global financial crisis, um, but this is a very different crisis. So what you're seeing is that um, the opportunity um, to offer forbearance has been um, has seen activity, but it hasn't been as heavy as I think market participants expected. If you look at the various channels, um, the overall forbearance take-up rate, um, as we sit here today, is about eight and a half percent, so considerably lower than the unemployment rate. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, a substantial percentage of those um, borrowers that are taking advantage of forbearance are nevertheless making their mortgage payments. So it ends up being a very interesting exercise to try to forecast what impact the opportunity to take advantage of forbearance is going to have on ultimate loan performance. And that's what we're spending quite a bit of time doing right now. Um, you know, the, 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 the opportunity to um, take advantage of 12 months of forbearance means that this could play out over the next 12 months. And, you know, we'll see to varying degrees um, how many borrowers both take advantage of it and how long they take advantage of it. Um, that, uh, that rate of 8.5% overall um, is disproportionately influenced by the FHA and Ginny May um, borrowers. And, and that forbearance rate is about 12%. So it is a, a bigger chunk of the FHA portfolio, whereas the Fannie and Freddie portfolios, it's more like 6.4%. You know, I think much as you had strategic defaults in the global financial crisis, I think we might be seeing some strategic forbearance where borrowers that actually have the ability to pay their mortgages are nevertheless taking advantage of forbearance because um, they can accumulate cash reserves and that they fully expect and plan to make mortgage payments uh, once they have to make mortgage payments. Office sector workers were very nimbly able to migrate from an office working environment to a work from home environment. That's what you and I are doing right now. And, and we've seen that across the, the office sector. And um, while that's been a huge resilient um, factor, in how our economy has reacted to the pandemic, it does make me wonder what impact migrating all of that technology to a remote working environment might have for the market that you deal with, which is quantifying cyber risk. And I'd be very interested to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, thanks, Mike. You know, it's, it's interesting, you know, working with our clients, um, people had their BCP plans in, in place, their, their business con continuity plans. Since 9-11, people put a lot of thought into that. There's been a lot of migration to the cloud. So overall, I think in that uh, you know, office sector part of the economy, um, the transition wasn't that difficult, um, and particularly in the finance sector. That being said, kind of one of the big themes we're seeing is that you know, there's this heightened national vulnerability. You know, more or less everybody is, is working from home because of shelter in place. You, know, you still have e-commerce. In particular, you know, ordering things from the pharmacy are pretty important. Um, we've got online schooling uh, going on. And so things are more dependent on the Internet than ever before, as well as communications. Um, so the cyber implications of that we will have to address in our next podcast. With that, uh, thank you for your time, Mike. Uh, you've been listening to Critical Point, presented by Milliman. To listen to other episodes of our podcast, visit us at milliman.com. Or you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. See you next time.